The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Silly little puzzles that mathematicians look at, work out how to solve, and in solving it, invent whole new areas of mathematics that then underpin vast amounts of science. That was Alex Bellos discussing the history of puzzles. What I discovered in researching her life was the memoirs in which she recorded the earlier years of her life. The bright, scampish, rather, it must be said, she could be something of a coquette. And that was Stephen Taylor discussing the life of Lady Anne Barnard. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the third podcast of January 2017. I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview is with the author and journalist Alex Bellos, who has a special interest in the history of mathematics. His latest book, Can You Solve My Problem?, compiles some of the most fascinating puzzles from across the past 2,000 years and from all over the world. He spoke to our editor, Rob Attar, who began by asking him about where the puzzle first originated. I guess this is a question maybe more for an evolutionary biologist rather than for a historian, because I imagine people were playing and setting themselves puzzles since before things were written down, i.e. prehistory. What I have done in my book is concentrated on a particular type of puzzle, which is the sort of mathematical and logic puzzle. In other words, a puzzle that you can solve knowing nothing else. You don't need any technical abilities at at maths or anything like that, or you also don't need a kind of general knowledge about the world. It's something that is a puzzle that you use your wits about you. You use sort of logical thinking to get to the end of it. And those... I would say, again, it depends what you mean by puzzle. If you mean some playing around with mathematical ideas or logical ideas just for fun, then sort of recreational mathematics, well, that's, again, you go to the oldest writing that there is. You go to Babylonian cuneiform tablets, and there are mathematical problems in there that must have been some kind of a puzzle because they're not about some humdrum task that you actually might actually have to do in the real world, like um, dividing loaves of bread or measuring an area. But in my book, Can You Solve My Problems, where I sort of read the kind of vast kind of tract of the literature of puzzles and about puzzles, and the earliest sort of interesting puzzle that I have chosen was a chosen from, I think, about the fourth century in China, which is known as, well, it's a whole genre of puzzles called Hundred Birds Puzzles or Hundred Birds Problems. So for the book, you've picked out puzzles from thousands of years of history and across 
all of the world. How on earth did you go about narrowing it down and selecting the puzzles for it? Well, there's a lot of literature on puzzles, so you read all the books. But also, when a puzzle is a good one, it tends to last. Puzzles go viral. And, you know, I realised how much puzzles go viral when last year, so I've got a math blog on The Guardian, and I get lots of different feeds from sort of math stories from around the world. And there was this small website from Singapore that had a puzzle from a Singapore maths exam. And I thought, that looks quite a fun puzzle. It was the, the Cheryl's birthday problem. And I put it on my Guardian blog, and it turned out it was the most successful story I have written in 30 years of being a journalist. More than 5 million people viewed that story. So it was easily the most popular story of that week. It was last April in The Guardian. But it was picked up by the BBC. It was the biggest story on the BBC's website. It was picked up by The Telegraph, by The New York Times. It was the biggest story on all of their websites. It kind of went around the world. I think that never has a math problem spread so virally around the world so fast to so many people. And it made me you know, research where puzzles come from, all the best puzzles. And puzzles have always gone viral, the good ones, because you know, a good puzzle is something that's simple to say, that has a kind of fun sort of little math nugget within it. And when you solve it, you then want to go and tell someone else because you want to go and challenge them. So these 100 fouls problems that I, I was j just mentioned started off in China, but by the um, 8th and 9th century, we're, we're all over the world. Probably the most famous puzzle of all time, the most famous kind of mathy riddle of all time uh, comes from the 8th century, or that was the first time it was written down, by Alcuin of York. And it's a river crossing puzzle. Probably he, he, there, were, there were three river crossing puzzles that he wrote or is believed to have written. And the most famous one, I think, is the one where a traveller arrives at a riverside. He has a wolf, a goat, and a bunch of cabbages. And he needs to get to the other side, but the boat is so small that he can only take one item at him at a time. But he can't leave a wolf with a goat because the wolf will eat the goat, and he can't take the leave the goat and the cabbages because the goat will eat the cabbages. How does he get across? And this is it's not a difficult puzzle, but this is a puzzle that is probably the most viral puzzle of all time because it spread everywhere. Okay, it only spread as fast as people walking and talking because there wasn't really much writing going on. But now, if you go to almost any culture in the world, they have adapted this puzzle to like the local animals or the local food stuff. And it's become almost like a folk story rather than a math riddle. So I think that what I was sort of discovering is that the best puzzles are said again and again and again, and all you need to do is find the ones that last and then reinvent them for a modern audience. Has the purpose of puzzles traditionally been purely entertainment, or have some of the puzzle setters actually been looking to educate people with them? I think both. Uh, so Alcuin of York was the kind of great educator of Carolingian times. He was chosen by Charlemagne to head the palace school at Aachen, but also set by... Charlemagne then to organize on a kind of empire scale, on a continental scale, how education works and the, um, the sort of teaching places that he set up kind of predates universities. And so Alcuin is obviously an educator and he sent in his retirement from 
under Charlemagne. He sent Charlemagne a letter talking about these puzzles that he had, saying, I'm sending you these puzzles to entertain you. And so the purpose was entertainment, but he was an educator. So I'm sure they were brilliant for educators because they entertain, but they educate at the same time. Having looked back at puzzles over a couple of thousand years, do you see any trends in the, the way puzzles have changed? Have they become, say, more difficult over time or perhaps the opposite? There have always been simple puzzles and always more difficult puzzles. And it depends what level you are, what sort of puzzle you're going to enjoy. And definitely as mathematics has got more complicated, people now set the most sort of fiendishly difficult puzzles. Uh, I think that what you see, though, is that you see new genres of puzzles cropping up and you see different regional varieties interested in different types of puzzles at different times in history. So, for example, there is a whole genre of puzzle about people who always lie and people who always tell the truth. And you get into different situations with them. Well, you can date who was the first person to come up with a puzzle about lies and truth tellers. And that was Lewis Carroll in the late 19th century. Although the puzzles that Lewis Carroll came up with were, weren't as good as his books and didn't really resonate so much. It was really in the 1930s that there became a huge vogue for logic puzzles and there's a guy who is, is barely known anymore, a guy called Hubert Phillips, who kind of became a sort of nationally cherished figure for all the logic puzzles, many of them based on lies and truth tellers that came up. And some of them are quite easy and some of them are like impossibly difficult. Do any of these changes in puzzles actually reflect wider changes going on in various societies? Well, the changes in puzzles reflect new inventions in mathematics. So there's a whole range of, say, probability puzzles and... You weren't going to get that in the Middle Ages because probability hadn't been invented. What you do have now is there are certain cultural traits. So Japan is a hotbed of what we call kind of pencil and paper puzzles. These are ones where you need a pencil and paper and you kind of mark things off like, say, Sudoku. So Sudoku, even though the general idea, it's an American puzzle from the 1970s. It was only when a Japanese magazine rebranded it, reinvented it, that it became a huge hit in Japan. And from being a hit in Japan, then spread around the world. But that is just one of a, a genre of similar type puzzles that you get in Japan. And one of the things that I did in my book, I've got some examples of brand new Japanese pencil and paper puzzles. And maybe there is something about the a Japanese sensibility, which has kind of encouraged a growth of that sort of a puzzle, or it could just be that they were lucky to have a few great puzzle solvers who started magazines and then created the following. It's hard to say. You mentioned there about magazines. What impact did newspapers and magazines have on the spread of puzzles? Huge. So before newspapers and magazines there were occasional books often written by mathematicians that were compendia of the interesting puzzles sort of the day but often you know every 100 years you'd get a new classic tome on puzzles and they would be um, more or less the same puzzles in the second half of the 19th century where you started to get the proper distribution of newspapers and magazines there was a huge boom in chess problems and chess puzzles 
but also there were essentially two giant figures in the history of puzzles who totally stimulated um, a wider interest. And one of them was an American called Sam Lloyd, who worked in America, and he was in all the newspapers and all the magazines, and he was a bit of a kind of a huckster. So he would um, sort of brash American, sort of hype himself, slightly fib about his backstory, and uh, got quite rich. And he was just a little bit older than a guy in the UK called Henry Ernest Dudeney, even though the two men corresponded for a while, but then they fell out because Dudeney accused Sam Lloyd of nicking his puzzles. But Dudeney started off maybe in, in the 1880s, and his oeuvre, the amount of puzzles that he produced, means that I would say he's possibly one of the greatest mathematicians in British history that no one has really heard of, because over a career from the 1880s to 1930, he created some of the world's most cherished puzzles, and he did them in so many different genres. And in the end, he had um, columns in newspapers, but he was most famous for a column in the literary magazine Strand, Strand magazine, in the sort of teens and 20s until literally the month he died in, in, in 1930. And his column was called Perplexities, and he introduced some just like terrific puzzles. And the kind of irony, or it's not really an irony, it's more a kind of an, a nice synchronicity, is who is seen as sort of the greatest puzzle solver, definitely in, in fiction, it would be Sherlock Holmes. And the Sherlock Holmes stories first appeared in Strand magazine at around about the same time that Dudeney was publishing his puzzles in it. There are so many Dudeney puzzles. For, for example, he invented some classic coin puzzles, obviously not particularly easy to explain on a podcast, but there are things that you've got coins in a certain position and you need to find ways of moving them into another position. The best ones were invented by Dudeney. And now, we learn them, and we just think that they must have been invented hundreds of years ago. But actually, they had they had an inventor at a time. A lot of these puzzles are still well known to us today. But why do you think it is that the actual creators of puzzles aren't really that famous? Haven't really come down to us through history that much. I guess, in the same way that the mathematics is the same. You know, you invent a theorem, and you're lucky if you sometimes your name gets attached to the theorem. But that's just the name of the of the, of the theorem, and then people carry on, they use the theorem, and it becomes just part of mathematical knowledge. With puzzles, no one's going to say, well, this is the Dudeney puzzle. You're going to say it's, it's the coin puzzle, or it's the cigar puzzle. I think puzzles, their names also change through time. So why would you remember who devised it? I mean, maybe at the time it was known, and definitely Hubert Phillips in the 1930s, he had a pseudonym called Caliban for his column, his puzzle column in the New Statesman. And they were known as Caliban puzzles. And it's only when, when he died and people sort of stopped calling them Caliban puzzles, now they're just called logic puzzles. Are there any stories associated with some of these puzzles that particularly stood out for you from your research? Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there are loads of, uh, of fun stories. So Hubert Phillips, because he was an economist and a journalist, he didn't actually come up with lots of the puzzles assigned to him. And he worked with professional mathematicians. And in the early 1930s, a young Cambridge postgraduate called Max Newman got in touch with one of the most fiendish logic puzzles 
of all time, which they called Caliban's Will. And I've actually I put that in my book, not because you will solve it, because but because of the history of it, and also because when you see the solution, it's it's like it's like understanding a poem and it all fits together. It's absolutely wonderful. Anyway, this guy, Max Newman, this is one of the first sort of public things that he did. When he got a little bit older, he during the Second World War, he ran a department at Bletchley Park. He was Alan Turing's mentor, and he was responsible for the world's first programmable computer. So he's a legend in computing. He, he ran the, the computer lab in Manchester where they built the, these computers after the war, which is where Turing died. He took Turing there. Um, but to think that when he was a kind of nerdy 25-year-old in Cambridge, that he actually created this sort of fantastic puzzle, I think is a really sort of nice story. And it shows that often we talk about there's the fun math and there's the serious math. Here is someone who learnt his subject or was interested in playing around. And I think one of the lessons of this book is that by playing around with puzzles is often how you make great advances in mathematics. Were there any incidences where solving a puzzle actually had serious ramifications to someone? Was it ever used as a test where the outcome could really matter? Well, I'm not sure there was ever a puzzle that someone's life depended on them solving it, unless you want to talk about, you know, there's a scene in Die Hard 3 where Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis have to solve this very famous medieval puzzle in like five minutes or the bomb is going to go off. But what you do have is silly little puzzles that mathematicians look at, work out how to solve, and in solving it, invent whole new areas of mathematics that then underpin vast amounts of science. So, for example, one classic example is Euler and the Bridges of Königsberg puzzle, which Königsberg, or Kalining, well then Kaliningrad, now Königsberg again, is a city with lots of rivers running through it, and it was all, all about can you find a path from all the different bits across the rivers in a certain way. And Euler worked out why you this you couldn't solve it, but what he did is that he represented the paths in an abstract way in what we now call a graph. And this began graph theory. And graph theory is a huge and important part of mathematics. You know, it comes in lots of things like say computer science. Another amazing example is the birth of probability. Probability was first kind of invented, so to speak, in the 17th century by Blaise Pascal and Pierre de Fermat, both French mathematicians, who were asked by this uh, gambler, the Chevalier de Meret, to try and work out how he could win at a dice game. And so by working out how he could win, they sort of figured out how chance works, how dice rolls works, and then it became more formalized, and that is the beginning of probability theory. And probability theory, well, within decades, it was underlying the kind of insurance industry, but then later it caused the uh, possibility of uh, statistics to be invented, and then it underlies quantum physics. So without these mathematicians trying to analyze these little gambling games, you know, kind of fun little puzzles that people are betting money on, you wouldn't have much of the modern world. What was the most difficult puzzle that you encountered in all your research? Well, the one that I think is probably the most difficult would have been the Caliban's Will puzzle invented by Max Newman, the 
Cambridge logician. But then there are lots of unsold mathematical problems. You could call them difficult puzzles too. I didn't put any of those in the book though. What I think is the key for a good puzzle is that it's an achievable goal. There's no point in trying to do something that you know there's no way you'll be able to solve. The thing that's fun about a puzzle is being teased by it that you can't solve it and then finally getting the best of it by using sort of lateral thinking or logical thinking by kind of using your wits. So I'm not that interested in puzzles that are too difficult. I'm interested in puzzles that kind of make you think. And what do you see as the future for the puzzle? I think actually puzzles are going through a huge kind of reinvention. Well, not in reinvention, but a reappraisal of puzzles at the moment because in the modern world, we don't use our brains enough because everything is easy. We don't need to remember telephone numbers. We don't need to even choose anything. Things get chosen for us through algorithms. So I think there is now more of an interest to try and use our brains but rather than using our brains for doing boring things like memorizing stuff what do we tickle our brains with puzzles so i can only see puzzles going from strength to strength just before alex went we asked him to pick one of his favorite historical puzzles for you all to have a go at here it is this puzzle was invented by Edouard Lucas in the late 19th century. He's a very famous French mathematician and also inventor of puzzles. And the puzzle is this. Every day at noon, an ocean liner leaves Le Havre and sails to New York, and it takes exactly seven days to do the crossing. Simultaneously, so at the same time that an ocean liner leaves Le Havre to go to New York, an ocean liner leaves New York and goes to Le Havre, and it takes exactly the same amount of time. It takes exactly seven days until it gets to Le Havre. The question is, if for an ocean liner leaving today from Le Havre, how many ocean liners will it pass before it gets to New York? So that was the puzzle. Now, you might like to pause the episode now so that you can work out the answer before Alex reveals it. Let's return to Alex for the answer to that tricky conundrum. So the reason why this is such a fantastic puzzle is most people think, well, it's got to be seven because it takes seven days and there's one coming every day from New York. So there will be seven ocean liners. But that is wrong because what about all the ocean liners that have already set off from New York, but that haven't arrived in Loal. So actually, the correct answer is 13. So just as you set off, we don't count that one, there will be one just arriving, which is the one that set off seven days ago. Then you see 13 when you're at sea, and there's a 14th exactly as you arrive in New York. Don't forget, there are many more historical brain teases in Alex's book, Can You Solve My Problems? A Casebook of Ingenious, Perplexing and Totally Satisfying Puzzles, which is out now in the UK, published by Faber. In the US, it is available for the Kindle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our second interview this week is with Stephen Taylor, author of a recent biography of the adventurous and unconventional Georgian aristocrat, Lady Anne Bernard, who defied convention and married for love. Stephen is the first biographer to have been given access to Lady Anne's private papers, including six volumes of unpublished memoirs. I caught up with him to find out more about this remarkable woman. Stephen, perhaps you could maybe start off by telling us a little bit about Lady Anne Barnard. I mean, she's probably not a name that that many people are familiar with. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, in fact, I must confess, to start off with, uh, I knew quite rather little about her myself. I I mean, I was aware that she had been a figure in Georgian society, uh, that she had written a poem which uh, was very well known at the time. It was acclaimed by Scott and by Wordsworth. Uh, And I also knew that she was a a, a vivid diarist. Now, the reason for that is, and, and this is really how I came to the subject, that she had been uh, five years at the Cape of Good Hope, as it was then called, from 1797. Now, this was really the first British presence uh, in Southern Africa. And her letters and her journals, which she kept in that time, had been published. Uh, They'd been published largely in academic uh, form in South Africa uh, and studied by historians and by other academics as a source for the uh, years of early British settlement there. And actually, uh, when I started this project, what I had in mind was um, probably a book focusing on one of the early uh, women travellers, quite an indomitable breed uh, of women they were, uh, going out to the uh, the early empire. Uh, And Indeed, that she was, but she, as it turned out, uh, was so much more besides as well. Mm. I mean, so she was she was born in Scotland, in, in Edinburgh, wasn't she? Uh, which is, in fact, she was born at uh, the family home at Balcarres, uh, which is in Fife. It's actually across its old house, looking across the Firth of Forth, uh, quite isolated, uh, and like it was a titled family but like many uh, aristocratic scottish families although there was a title there was very little money uh, and so the uh, tendency was in instances like this that uh, the younger women uh, of titled families would be married off uh, to money uh, essentially to provide for uh, the rest of the family for the brothers and sisters who would be needing to make their way uh, and this indeed was very much the case in uh, in in her uh, uh, in her family. She was the eldest of eleven children. Uh, uh, the daughter being foremost, as it were, into the firing line when it came to um, actually sort of looking for someone who would uh, preserve the the, the family you know, the family estate. She, uh, because of her intrinsic. Uh, I think it's a uh, determination. She, she she was fortunate in her father, who was a very cultivated man. He kept a good library. And I think he fostered in her uh, a romantic spirit. She was well-read. She was by then mixing as well in Edinburgh, where she met, uh, oh, very interesting figures from the Scottish Enlightenment. David Hume was very well known amongst them, but there were a lot of others as well. Interesting non-conformist uh, thinkers of the time. 
Uh, and all these things contributed to uh, an unusually uh, well-read, a spirited, and very determined young woman uh, who uh, largely as a result, perhaps, of observing the fate of her younger sister, who was indeed married off to an investment banker of the day at the age of se- she being 17, uh, married a man named Alexander Fordyce, who was uh, aged 40, uh, and moved down to London. It was a very unhappy marriage, and largely as a result of her own romantic spirit and observing experiences like this, uh, Anne Lindsay, as she was, uh, was very determined to avoid a similar fate. I mean, but she she had no shortage of um, of suitors, by the sounds of it, though. Absolutely right. I mean, there was <laughs> she was uh, she was not only uh, very bright; she was also very witty. She was perhaps not the great beauty that her sister was, but she was wonderful in company. Um, I mean, this one comes, this comes across. I might just digress here a little. You know, I, I said at the outset that I started off with one particular character in mind, and that was the woman who had traveled uh, to the Cape at the age of, well, she was 42 by then. Uh, and she had learned a lot about the world by then. She had seen a great deal. What I discovered in researching her life was the memoirs in which she recorded the earlier years of her life. The bright, scampish, rather, it must be said, she could be something of a coquette. She loved the attention of men and she certainly attracted it on a great number of occasions. Now that was, we can only admire that sort of spirit that comes up and emerges on the pages of her memoirs now. But at the time, of course, this attracted a good deal of, uh, well, I mean, uh, criticism, certainly in Edinburgh, where on the one hand, you had this enlightened uh, and very uh, uh, forward-thinking group of men. On the other hand, you had, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty rough sort of a place. Uh, I mean, I, I think I might read an aspect of one of the uh, stories that she told of these early days when she was mixing as a young woman uh, amongst uh, the, if you like, very masculine society. And she wrote of finding herself in a group of older men who she says were fond of a good bottle of wine and that dastardly style of conversation called double entendre, which I look upon as the murder of the innocents for nothing can be more cruel than to attack the ears of a modest, sensitive young woman with what she must not understand and dare not not resent. So she is actually, on the one hand, enjoying the attention of the men who come to pay a court to her. On the other hand, maintaining a very strict and determined line that she would not marry without love. And eventually, because of her resistance to the overtures that were being made by those trying to foist uh, various individuals upon her as a husband. Uh, She uh, found herself in in Edinburgh with a reputation as a heartless coquette. Now, she had spirit. She was perhaps uh, enjoying herself in company, but this was very, the kind of uh, gossip which she attracted made her very uncomfortable. And she, as a result, uh, moved from Scotland uh, and came down to join her sister, with whom she'd had this very, very strong bond uh, since childhood. 
to live with her in London, which was how, of course, she came into that um, that high society of the Georgian age. Mm. I mean, you, you you mentioned that she she does eventually marry, um, but did she come close to marrying anyone bef- before um, she met her future husband? Yes, uh, there were um, after years of. Um, as it were, sort of enjoying her independence and find her way and um, having fun in the world of uh, of society London. She, uh, f- first of all, met a very charming um, but somewhat dissipated young lord named Wentworth. Uh, and that went nowhere for years. He was a gambler, um, unable to extract himself from the company that he kept at the gaming table tables of London. She then uh, found herself deeply, and for the, probably the first time in her life, deeply and passionately uh, engaged with a very interesting but deeply damaged man of the time. Uh, his name was William Wyndham. And he was extremely gifted. He had been a protege of uh, Samuel Johnson's, Dr. Johnson. Um, he went into political life. He gave every sign of, uh, of being determined to marry her. But when, of course, it came to the sticking point, he was a man of weird rather damaged interior, unable to make up his mind about all sorts of things. And the extraordinary thing, I think, about the relationship as she describes it, because this is one of those episodes which she sets down in her unpublished memoirs. The most interesting part of the story, really, are these memoirs in which she tells so much about her life, none of it which has been uh, published before very little of which has actually been known. She reveals herself in a way which is quite uh, almost unique, I would say, for the woman of that time. There's no sort of, none of the, if you like, sort of uh, dry withdrawal of uh, of Austen-like writing. There's none of the uh, (laughs) politeness of Fanny Burney. She writes very rawly about what was happening to her life, what was going on, and the obviously very brutal, uh, that's not to say in a physical sense, but in the very cruel treatment that she received from uh, this man, William Wyndham. It drew her into all sorts of uh, events, including traveling off to to Paris at the height of the revolution uh, to join him there with a group of other British aristocrats and politicians to observe what was actually uh, going on in in neighboring France at the time. All these episodes set down quite often with irony, with a kind of humor, but also with a very searing and uh, at times painful uh, honesty. Her husband, um, when she finally did marry, she had actually um, rejected him, hadn't she, a few years before, which I found quite surprising. What what made her want to decide to to, to finally settle down? I think that she had by now. I mean, she was, after all, uh, by then, she was 42. Uh, he um, was uh, an unknown uh, former, former army officer, uh, charming and uh, evidently quite has, handsome. I think she realized that this was the, as it were, the last uh, throw of the dice. Uh, 
she knew perfectly well that a society would regard this as a very peculiar match indeed. I mean, Barnard would be seen as a blackguard on the make. She would be thought uh, a desperate old maid. She, as she said, she, she said, the world will probably think me absurd. Um, in fact, uh, she and, and Barnard's, it turned out, were, were soulmates. I think it, it was, uh, as well as she called it, uh, the... Uh, the, apparently the saddest and the silliest, but in reality, the wisest act of my life. I mean, it's quite clear from their surviving letters that they enjoyed a close physical relationship at the home that he used to call Cuddle Hall. Um, and um, when they were elsewhere as guests, uh, Barnard would insist that they were amongst those couples who were unfashionable enough to sleep in the same bed. And it is actually, of course, with Barnard that she has the, the really the greatest adventure of her life, uh, which was when uh, she had obtained him the position. He, of course, is not a man with any influence at all. She is the one who has the influence. And it may be assumed that there was a certain amount of beneficiary activism on Barnard's side in, in, in courting her in the first place. But as I say, the, the letters do reveal that there was a very deep and, and, and profound love between them, as well as uh, shared interests. And she managed to obtain him the position of uh, secretary to the governor uh, at the Cape. Now, the uh, general view at the time was that, uh, that she would not accompany him. Uh, she was, after all, an aristocrat, and aristocrats did not, uh, at the time, sail halfway around the world in dangerous and uh, very uncomfortable conditions uh, in order to live in what were generally regarded as sweltering hellholes. Um, but she insisted that she was going to go uh, with him, at which point uh, one of Pitt the Younger's uh, uh, senior ministers, a man named Henry Dundas, who had actually obtained her the position, said, good God, you go to live with the Hottentots? Uh, and this was the sort of the general attitude that people like, people like her did not do this. In fact, it opened the door to what was plainly, from her own writings, uh, the happiest time of her life. So she enjoyed living in South Africa. Her experience there was, was a positive one. She not only um, she not only lived there. She engaged very deeply with the place. I mean, they. Um, uh, you, it's quite a good thing to remember that really uh, the Cape at the time had only been seen by Pitt the Young government, Pitt the Younger's government, as a kind of strategic bastion that was in order to protect uh, what was the crucial trade from British interests, which was with India. Uh, there had been a Dutch settlement at the Cape, but really it had done very little in the way of establishing any sort of links or interests in the interior. And Anne Barnard, as she now is, and her husband, not only uh, perform their duties, but they take a huge uh, uh, and passionate interest in the country itself. Anne is writing to her influential uh, friends in London, Henry Dundas, who is, as I say, put the youngest deputy amongst them, making the point constantly that this is not some uh, uh, merely a strategic link. It is actually a place of enormous uh, potential. Uh, she was traveling and by ox wagon into the interior. Uh, she was 
engaging with the local people, the Dutch farmers on the one hand, but also, uh, it must be said in the most extraordinarily egalitarian way for the time, uh, with the local Khoi Khoi people. Uh, and all the time advising Dundas and other friends back in England that this was a place with enormous potential. The, all you have to do, she said, is plant. This landscape is not only magnificent, it is hugely fertile. Uh, and in the process of uh, their travels, she is drawing, painting, as well as writing. And she leaves extraordinarily vivid uh, and impressive images of the landscape. Uh, one of the things that did surprise me was that she forgave her husband's infidelity and actually brought up his illegitimate child um, after his death. This, I think, is the most extraordinary story. Um, it, he had, uh, Andrew Barnard was a charming uh, and rather unworldly man. He had uh, previously, before he met Anne, uh, he had a mistress who had been uh, a companion of a number of other men. Uh, she had two illegitimate children. Uh, al almost certainly, I think, one of them was not uh, by Barnard. One quite probably was. But he was quite happy uh, to, uh, to accept them as his. He was quite open in telling Anne about their existence. So she had, as it were, some experience of his previous previous uh, life and his and his habits, when they were in South Africa, uh, she, uh, as I say, spent five years there, and then came back before him in order to try and establish a position for him back in London. It was at that time that uh, he fathered a child by a black woman at the Cape. Now, Anne was oblivious of that uh, during his lifetime, but after his death, was informed by the then governor at the Cape that this child had, uh, had, had, was alive, was, a, was in existence, uh, and would she be interested in actually doing anything just to provide for its future support, instead of just simply sending out money uh, to the Cape to a family who would have raised the child, child as theirs, she actually brought her back to uh, London and raised her under her own roof with Andrew's two other uh, previous descendants of Andrew's previous children uh, at Berkeley Square, as it were, as her own. And um, she and Christina, the name of the, uh, of the of the girl, became very close companions. And Christina, in fact, um, made. Many of the uh, entries we see became her amanuensis, as she called it, her, her scribe who would set down the memoirs in the journals which she was keeping and went to further steps to ensure that after her own death that Christina would be provided for. And that indeed was the case. She uh, married well uh, to a farmer in Wiltshire uh, with a settlement on her and had children of her own. Uh, before dying uh, as a mother of five children. That was Stephen Taylor on the life of Lady Anne Barnard. Stephen's biography of Anne, Defiance, The Life and Choices of Lady Anne Barnard, is available now, published by Faber. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. 
The Museum of London is set to receive a £180 million funding boost from the City of London Corporation and London Mayor Sadiq Khan. In a project intended to cost £250 million, the museum is set to relocate to a bigger site at the derelict Victorian Smithfield Market near Farringdon. Khan called the museum, which contains more than six million objects telling the story of London's history, a jewel in London's crown. The world's greatest city deserves the world's greatest museum, he stated. In other news, archaeologists in Northamptonshire have made an unusual and grisly discovery at a Roman burial site. The skeleton of a man whose tongue appears to have been cut out and replaced by a stone. Human skeletal biologist Simon Mays told The Guardian that the discovery mirrors other burials from Roman Britain, where missing body parts in the grave are replaced by objects at the appropriate anatomical location. He added that evidence of bacterial infection in the bones suggests that the man's tongue was amputated while he was still alive. Thought to have died in the 3rd or 4th century, the man was also buried face down. According to Mays, this unusual practice is consistent with somebody whose behaviour marked them out as odd or threatening within a community and was seen as a way of stopping a corpse rising from its grave to threaten the living. Meanwhile, international police agency Interpol has stated that it recovered more than 3,500 stolen historical artefacts during a widespread operation last year. The operation targeted airports, border checkpoints, post offices, websites and art galleries and even involved scouring scuba diving schools for plundered underwater artefacts. Several of the objects recovered, which include a variety of historical coins and an Ottoman tombstone, are of great cultural importance in the archaeological world, Interpol stated. Well, that's about it for this week's episode, but we'll be back next week with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.